You're listening to There's a Better Way, smart talk on healthcare and technology. If you're up for energizing and story-driven conversations with national healthcare leaders driving industry innovation across the country, then you are in the right place. Community pharmacist Michelle Belcher is president of the National Community Pharmacists Association, or NCPA, and owner of Grants Pass Pharmacy. Michelle's father, also a pharmacist, owned Grants Pass Pharmacy and passed it on to her. She fondly recalls working at the pharmacy's beloved soda fountain as a teen and watching her parents balance the desire to be patient-focused while keeping their family business viable. Michelle's passion for community-based care, combined with the deep clinical expertise and personal experience with the business pressures community pharmacies face, made her a perfect candidate for president of NCPA. Michelle has long been active in state and federal legislation impacting community pharmacies. In fact, she just received an invitation to the White House to attend President Biden's formal signing ceremony for the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm fairly certain she's the only guest so far on There's a Better Way to receive such an invite. But time will tell. I'm so excited to talk with Michelle and learn more about her focus on compassionate care and ensuring community pharmacy has a seat at the table. Michelle, welcome to There's a Better Way. I'm so happy to have you on the show today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for coming to share your perspective on the importance of community pharmacy. And congratulations on being elected president of the National Community Pharmacy Association. Thank you. Your background is wide-ranging and you're quite forward-thinking, which we'll unpack a little more as our conversation goes on. But let's start at the beginning. You grew up in the pharmacy, right? I did. I did. My uh, father's a pharmacist and uh, my parents purchased the pharmacy I now own, Grants Pass Pharmacy, in 1973. So I was 10 years old and, and spent a lot of time here. Interesting. But at the end of the day, you really didn't, you weren't thinking of yourself as a pharmacist. You wanted to be a pediatrician, right? I did. Always thought that being a physician and specifically a pediatrician is what really interested me because I, I love children very much. So, But what changed then? You didn't, you didn't end up becoming a pediatrician. You went, you went to become a pharmacist. As much as I loved being around and working here at the pharmacy with you know, my mom and dad, I started dating uh, my high school sweetheart. And he had plans to go into the Marine Corps after college. And uh, we continued dating through college. And so pretty, pretty early um, in my uh, college career, I, I changed that path. You know, pre-pharmacy and, and pre-med are very similar, but changed that path to thinking, you know, if, if we were going to continue on and, and get married, that pharmacy was something, a career that a woman could uh, have and, and move around our country um, and get licensed in different states. So it was something that seemed to, to fit all of the boxes in terms of mobility and my interest in interacting and helping patients, you know, in the medical profession. 
And I think you you were explaining to me earlier that you did you did just that. You you practiced in many different settings. So when I first first graduated from Oregon State, uh, I had done a rotation at a health system, um, a small hundred bed hospital in Albany, Oregon. Uh, at that time was Albany General Hospital uh, and now is in the Samaritan Health Systems. But it was a very forward thinking, you know, now it, looking back, forward thinking hospital in that the pharmacist was an integral part of the, the you know, interdisciplinary healthcare team. We rotated on the code and trauma team. We were up on the floor every day. So the medications were kept in a locked cabinet in a patient's room. So you interacted with the patients and charted your interactions. Um, you know, if you noticed something that was of concern that you wanted to make sure that the physicians, you know, rotated and addressed. And so it was something that I, I was sure I was going to stay in the health system world. One of our first duty stations was back in Quantico, Virginia. And we lived in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And I worked at a 350-bed hospital there, Mary Washington. It was a very different experience for me. And I realized that you weren't always an integral part of the you know, interdisciplinary team. And it made me realize that we needed to, you know, I needed to rethink or or adjust that every environment, whether it's health systems or uh, community pharmacy, every environment is not the same. And, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed my time there and learned so much, um, you know, at a, at a larger hospital was able to bring a lot of my experiences from a small hospital. It, it started me thinking that environments, no matter where they are, are different. So that's an interesting description where the first hospital was, you're really part of the direct patient care team versus the larger hospital where you were indirectly part, you were part of the care team, but not directly interfacing with the patient, which you clearly like to do based on what you do today and even you know, your early days of wanting to be a pediatrician. So after, there was kind of a small segue in, in terms of after Virginia, uh, we were stationed during the first Gulf War in Yuma, Arizona, which is a, my husband was an air traffic control officer and, and Yuma is a, the largest uh, airfield for the Marine Corps um, and second largest for the, for the Navy. And so, as you can imagine, lots of training happened in the desert there. During that time, there was not an opening at the hospital there in Yuma. And so there were three, the director of the hospital pharmacy and then two independent pharmacy owners had just opened a closed door pharmacy that serviced long-term care pharmacies, excuse me, long-term care facilities, and also did IV infusions. They asked me if I would be interested in, with my background, in managing and being the pharmacist in charge of that pharmacy and was really interesting to me to think about that that new role and consulting portion in the long-term care and so I took on that role while we were stationed there which was about five years and during that time what I realized though because it was a business is my background 
that I had seen my parents in terms of the hours that you put into your business to make sure that, you know, the work is done, but helping, you know, pay the bills and manage all of the different aspects of the business, I was doing for them because I had that background and interest. And so that really led me to start thinking about the fact that some of the things that I had originally maybe thought that that I didn't want to do were very much a part of my my work ethic and and so I really realized that the business portion was also a part that I had real interest in and so when my husband uh, he had a reserve commission and got out after the first Gulf War we decided my parents said we're trying to make their exit plan and asked us are, do you have interest in moving back to Grants Pass and we decided that that, that was the exact thing that we would like to do. So we decided to move back, start our family, which which we didn't have any children at the time. And so all of our grandparents lived here and both of our parents. And so it was a wonderful move back home. Well, I know that community clearly is incredibly important to you. Can you just give a little background on what's your community like at Grants Pass and what kinds of patients are you seeing? We see all types of, of patients. And, and I think one of the, the special parts of independent community pharmacy across the country is that so often we're seeing generations of families and being able to help entire families uh, with either, you know, flavoring and, and helping a new mom be able to get medication uh, into their, uh, you know, new newborn baby and, and or maybe their three-year-old help flavor it so that they will be more uh, compliant with taking their medication or helping families that are moving into the time when their elderly patient, you know, parent is struggling with trying to stay independent and be at home and helping them with ways that we can package medication to stay compliant. So uh, we see all kinds. We, we also, you know, have a large group of patients, it seems like, that are struggling in terms of maybe mental health, or have a few patients that are homeless. And so trying to help them figure out ways to keep their medications safe, ways that, you know, we like to express to our patients that, you know, that they're, they're treated with respect and dignity. And no matter what situation they're in, they know that they can come here and receive that same type of, of respect, I think, that every individual uh, is, is entitled to. You know, it's powerful. And I have to just say for listeners out there, you can probably hear the compassion in Michelle's voice. I can see it as I'm talking with her and her expression. That connection with your patients is very important to you. Um, so, you talked about mental health just now a little bit, and I know, I think you started a nonprofit to help those with opioid disorders. Where does that come from? 
So we had a group here in 2012, 2014, somewhere right around there, uh, that had a lot of interest in starting a medication-assisted treatment center uh, for those with substance use disorders. And it was the, the group of us on the board of directors, it's called Grace Roots Pathways to Wellness. And what we wanted to do, you know, mission-wise is really help our community understand that we need to provide services and pathways to help individuals with a desire to, you know, seek treatment and and start living a better lifestyle in terms of, you know, integrating them into their, into our society and our community. And so uh, that we were successful in starting the treatment center um, in 2017. And we're now just received um, state and federal funding to start residential care facility for pregnant women with either substance use disorder or opioid use disorder. And looking at being able to have that facility to help promote and support their their treatment, as well as teaching them healthy living and mothering. And this is, our, our vision is to serve the mom um, while she's pregnant and uh, then up until the time that the child is two years old in during that spectrum to have a very holistic approach to you know teaching gardening and cooking and parenting and all the things that that go into uh, an individual being not only a good parent but a integral part of every community. Oh, what a what an amazing program and huge impact, I'm sure. So let's move to COVID-19. I understand from an NCPA article that Grants Pass was hit particularly hard by COVID-19. And at one point, the city was overwhelmed by the refrigerator trucks. Can you talk a little bit about that time and share any personal stories? Sure. Uh like so many of my colleagues providing vaccinations, you know, from the start of 2021 was part of every single day, giving hundreds of vaccines every day, offering uh, clinics when necessary at, you know, different locations to meet the needs of, of particular patient populations. But during the Delta variant, we were hit especially hard, unfortunately had a lot of deaths in our community and did have refrigeration trucks behind the hospital, unfortunately. That was also at the time that the Regen Cove monoclonal antibody treatment was released and pharmacists were given authority to prescribe and administer the monoclonal antibodies. And so that was something that I decided to do and was the first pharmacy in Oregon. And so these are patients that were positive with COVID. 
So I would have to see the patients after hours and or go to their own home or place of residence, sometimes foster cares or residential care facilities. And these patients, it was a powerful time because first you had to assess and make sure that they met the protocol uh, requirements for pharmacists to administer. Then you had to administer four subcutaneous injections and then were required under the EUA to monitor the patient for an hour. So during that time that you were monitoring, I found that almost 90% of the patients that I administered to had not received the vaccine. So I used that as an opportunity to have a one-on-one conversation with them about could I answer questions for them on why they were hesitant to receive the vaccine. And it was one of the most moving times for me in terms of learning the real fear that some people had about the vaccine and providing an environment that they felt safe to listen to me answering their questions that they had. And so to see them three months later, because you needed to wait three months after receiving the monoclonal antibodies before you could get vaccinated, but to see some of those individuals come back and say, I've decided to get the vaccine. And it was incredibly rewarding to be able to play that role where you're able to provide information that allowed someone to rethink a decision that they had previously made and and decide to get the vaccine. Yeah, that's a great, amazing story. Such incredible patience and connection. You know, you told a story too when we were prepping about how nimble community pharmacy was in being able to administer the vaccines when it was very early on. Can you talk about that? So that was our my first, we had received vaccine. It was January, 2021. And at that time, it was just being the only populations that were allowed to receive were those in long-term care or residential care facilities. So where lots of people are living together. And it had been federally decided that it would be provided by three big box pharmacies across the country to to those facilities. And in Oregon, we don't have a lot of those particular contracts in big box. And I received a call that the adult developmentally disabled community that lived in adult foster cares in our county had received notice that they would not be receiving the vaccine. And we're looking at about 150 individuals plus their caregivers and asked, was there anything that I could do? The one thing that any independently owned community pharmacy can do is we are very nimble and agile in terms of I can make that decision going and and setting up a clinic to administer the vaccine 
in two days. So we found a facility that would house, had a large parking lot where we would be able to give individuals their vaccination in the vehicle if they were hesitant to come inside. Um, Some had mobility issues that wouldn't allow them to be able to come inside. Some were just apprehensive. Uh, As you can imagine, like so many of us, it was a traumatic time for everyone in the country. And so you take patients with different developmental disabilities. And I think it was especially traumatic in that their life had changed so much. Suddenly, you know, they're having to wear masks, everybody around them, not going out into the community at all anymore. It was our first opportunity to provide a service that was greatly needed in our community. We were called the next week by the Uh, CCO here and asked, would you be willing to travel two and a half hours to a neighboring county on the coast? Because they didn't have anybody, they didn't have an independent community pharmacy, unfortunately, and would we, you know, travel over? And so my husband and I said, absolutely, and uh, packed up and uh, had a physician and a nurse from a local clinic that were willing to donate their time to come over and help administer as well. And so it was, it was a powerful time. There are stories like that, that I've heard my colleagues from across the country tell over and over again. So I think that, you know, realizing that this was happening all across the country is, is something that I'm very proud of independent community pharmacy and how we showed that that we were there at in the greatest time of need that I think in recent times that we can think of. And so it's it's pretty powerful. You know, these stories of how healthcare across the country just just really showed up and made major changes to, to address COVID are just quite amazing. What other kinds of changes happened in your pharmacy to accommodate the pandemic for two years? So we uh, immediately started when we needed to close our lobby. We immediately started curbside service. We had always and continued to to do, my my father had started in the 1970s, uh, free delivery for our patients that are homebound. And so it's something that we were already delivering that obviously expanded to others because pretty much everybody was homebound. But for those that that could get out in terms of driving, uh, they could park curbside or in our alley. They would call, We'd, like many other pharmacies, uh, call and, and deliver it just right to their car. So uh, that was one of our most immediate things that we adjusted. Before we pivot to your role with the NCPA and with some of the work you've done in Washington, D.C., I want to just ask you what I ask all of my guests, which is, where do you get your inspiration? I think the patients continue to inspire. Hearing their stories, hearing their struggles, hearing their needs gets me thinking of what we can do. There are so many expanded roles and authorities that pharmacists have the opportunity to 
provide their patients. There's almost no community that you hear of across the country that isn't suffering from a shortage of, you know, primary care providers. And my community is, is not exempt from that. We know that patients across the country see their pharmacists more than any other healthcare provider, many times, multiple times a month. And so there are times when we are able to recognize an issue or a problem or through a conversation realize that there's, there's an issue. And sometimes those conversations are happening between my delivery driver who's seen that patient, and they come back and report that this is what Mrs. Jones stated today. I'm concerned about her. We're able to then interact with their primary care provider and and address the issues. So let's talk about your presidency of NCPA, which represents 19,400 pharmacies that employ approximately 2,000 115,000 individuals nationwide. What, what do you see as your vision for community pharmacy? So my vision has been, as we've worked for the past several years on pharmacy transformation, specifically looking at areas where we can use our expanded roles and prescriptive authority specifically to be able to impact our patients first and foremost, but also our bottom line. It's, it's a struggle for independent community pharmacies to stay in business. And we must continue to look at ways that we can increase our bottom line so that we're able to stay in business. Uh, reimbursement continues to decrease, and it's a, it's a real problem for every one of our members. And in order for us to, to stay in business, we need to you know, look at those areas. And, and I think that the expanded roles is certainly an opportunity for us to do that. As a national healthcare leader, what keeps you up at night? The independent community pharmacies that are struggling and going out of business across the country. It's something that is is happening to many of our members, unfortunately. Well, what gets you up in the morning? My patients. Being able to come and Think about interacting with them, hearing their stories, hearing what's going on in their life, hearing their problems, providing the care. It's really exciting to see them get excited about, you know, the new services that we're providing. We've remodeled during COVID, uh, took the time when we didn't have patients in the store and remodeled and we've built a couple uh, clinical rooms that we're able to provide, you know, assessments and and prescribing and vaccinations. And it's exciting to see them come in since we've been, you know, back open, have an open lo- lobby again and and get excited about what they see. 
you know, patients, when we've seen independent pharmacies go out of business here in our community, and most recently, a small regional chain in Oregon closed their pharmacies. It's been almost a year ago now. The impact on the patients is frightening. And for them to come in and ask me face to face, are you going to still be in business? Are you going to be here? For them, when I took the presidency last October, and there was a write-up in our local newspaper, patients coming in to say, we're so glad you're fighting to be open for us. And knowing that that makes a difference just to my, you know, individual patients is so rewarding. And, and I know that all of my colleagues across the country are having these same relationships. And so it's, it's really about, it's about those relationships. And we just want to be able to stay in business take care of our patients, take care of our employees and our teams. It's, it's I think, what, what gets us up, all of us up every morning. So I, I think I'm probably not unlike most of my colleagues. I love that. And again, for listeners, as Michelle speaks about her patients, there again is the sparkle and smile. So you can tell that patients are truly what gets you up in the morning. So, well, thank you, Michelle, for spending time with us here today. I really appreciate the incredible work you're doing and the stories you shared with us. Well, thank you, Melanie. Thank you so much, Michelle, for spending time with us. I have to say, I've been quite moved by our conversation. As I noted to our listeners, I could really see you smile and sparkle when you talk about your patients, many of whom your pharmacy has been caring for for generations. When Grant's Pass was hit hard by the Delta variant of COVID-19, your community pharmacy rose to the occasion. You importantly noted that your business is particularly nimble because the buck stops with you. In the face of tragedy, you rallied colleagues to administer COVID-19 vaccines and you provided a safe space for patients to discuss their fears about the vaccine, many of whom, upon your counsel, came in and got one. Again, Michelle, you'll be one of the leaders I'm watching as the industry continues to undergo rapid change. Thank you for your work. For those of you listening in, we hope you'll join us again. Our final episode, will focus on protecting privacy and security in healthcare information exchange. Thank you for listening in today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and review. There's a better way. Smart talk on healthcare and technology. With your help, we'll continue to bring great conversations to the fore and to the wider listening public. Thank you.